Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. There is no denying that streets are important transportation routes. However, they are also important public spaces for social activities from dining to market stalls. In this session, we'll interrogate the emerging struggles over street spaces still dominated by roads and parking. We'll hear from Tegan Mitchell, the manager of major transport projects for Sydney, Dr. Rebecca Clemens from UCID, and Benjamin Carr, the co-founder of Lug Plus Carry e-bike hire. Let's start with Dr. Gary Cox, introducing our chair, Dr. Jennifer Kent. I'm Dr. Gary Cox. I've been a member of the Henry Halloran Trust Advisory Board for the past 10 years. Uh, all the time the Trust's been up and running. Um, before I, we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney Camperdown campus is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Okay, uh, I'm pleased to welcome you to this event in the Festival of Urbanism, which is being organised, as you know, by the Henry Halloran Research Trust. Some of you may or may not know that uh, the Trust uh, exists from a very a, extremely generous donation from Warren Halloran, and it's named after his father. Now, the centre is uh, focused on being cross-disciplinary, dedicated to fostering new research on cities and regions uh, with evidence informed by dialogue between researchers, government, industry and the community. And the Festival of Urbanism is now in its 10th year and this is one of the key ways we do this uh, so that we can promote dialogue on the, the key events of the day between those sectors I mentioned. So getting beyond uh, the university walls to government industry and to community, community activists and the general public. Today's event is about contested streets. It's one of the most contested areas between uh, planners that planners must manage in, compete, in managing competing demands between walkers, cyclists, drivers, other road users, uh, as well as the potential public uses of footpaths and roads as public spaces. Uh, this is a particular interest of mine, as I was involved with establishing for the National Health Service in London, the uh, Healthy Urban Development Unit, which was to look at the health impacts of uh, planning interventions. And as part of that, very recently, I, I led a project called the School Super Zones Project, which was nothing about what was happening within the school walls or within the school boundary, but looking at the, the streets and the environment in a 500 kilometre radius around the school and how that contributed to the children's health and well-being. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our chair for the, sec the session, who's Dr. Jennifer Kent. Uh, Dr. Kent is a senior research fellow in urbanism at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning. Her research sits at the intersection between urban planning, transport and human health. She specialises in combining quantitative and qualitative data with understanding from policy science to trace the practical, cultural and political barriers to healthy cities. Now, she tells me she's working particularly on how families use uh, roads and transport. Uh, so very, very relevant and uh, practical. She has experience working across institutions, including the Ministry of Health and with local health districts and transport agencies. Uh, and on several projects examining the translation of health evidence. Her findings are policy relevant and have been incorporated into state and federal urban planning agendas. She publishes regularly in highly ranked scholarly journals across the fields of urban planning, public health, transport 
and her work is widely cited. So it's nice to have such an expert, Jennifer. So I just welcome you to the podium. If a child is struck by a car that's travelling 50 kilometres an hour, there's a 90% chance that that child will die. If that same car is travelling at 30 kilometres per hour, there's only a 10% chance that that child would die and a 90% chance that they'll live. Here in Australia, we maintain some of the highest local default speed limits in the entire world at 50 kilometres an hour. Most built-up urban areas in Europe, increasingly the UK, including Wales, who congratulations to them on Sunday, reverted their default local speed limit to be around the 30 kilometre per hour mark. Even cities in New Zealand are now all transitioning to have a 30 kilometre local speed limit. It's not only for the safety of people who are not going to be hit by cars travelling at 50 kilometres an hour, it's also about opening up the streets so that they can be used by other modes, so that they can become part of the fabric of the city. My point of provocation today, perhaps controversial, given this is the festival of contested urbanism, is that when it comes to streets, there's no contest at all in Australia. How can the soft flesh and internal organs of a child possibly compete with 2.5 tonnes of metal travelling at speeds just under one-sixth of the speed that a bullet is launched from a nine-millimetre revolver. And all this, less than a metre of unprotected space from where we work, live and play. But let's back up a little. Sydney is growing. Anyone who's attempted to purchase land recently will tell you, space here is at a premium. This dwindling of space adds to, and in a way, epitomises the wicked problems that are faced by cities. These problems are so often about competition for resources, air, shelter, water, food, protection from our raging planet, to name a few. In his presentation at the opening of this festival in Sydney on Monday, Dr Rob Stokes explained how wicked problems are underpinned by wicked assumptions. These are the unquestioned often unquestionable beliefs, ideas, notions and values that are allowed to perpetuate problematic practices. They endure, not because they engage in contestation for attention, but because they don't even show up to play the game. Their power is very much in their invisibility. And today, we want to concentrate on one such assumption. That is that roads are for cars and not for people. Our streets are not contested, but they really should be, because street space is public space, and public space in growing cities is at a premium. But I have to say, this is not going to be a session about the equitable distribution of public space in cities, even though we could very definitely talk about that all day. It's going to be a session about innovation, the kinds of innovations that force us to question the assumptions that underpin the planning and the management of our streets as public spaces. We're going to start with Tegan Mitchell, who's here today from the City of Sydney, where she's the manager of major transport projects. Tegan has worked for Sydney Water and Transport for New South Wales in various strategy and transport planning roles. Her career has focused on road network performance and investment planning. And a career highlight for her, and rightly so, has been the development and implementation of the New South Wales Movement and Place Framework. This is a framework that aims to allocate road space based on the needs of all users and not just vehicle drivers. Tegan is a fantastic advocate and champion of better places and healthy streets. She rides a bike for transport a lot, and she's also the director of Walk Sydney the New South Wales Peak Walking Advocacy Group. I'll now hand over to Tegan. Thank you, uh, Jennifer, and welcome, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to share a little bit about the work that the city is doing uh, in this space of uh, contested urbanism. So I am hopefully not going to do death by slides today, so I'm, I've got less, more than more slides, I promise. But there are still a few. I'm going to talk a little bit about strategy at the city. I'm going to talk about what do we know about what people want. I'm going to talk about how we might go about solving or implementing some of those solutions. I'm going to talk about challenges and opportunities and where we put our money. 
And then if we've got time, I'll just tell you a couple of anecdotes um, that we've got uh, working at the city where people are very free in giving us feedback about all elements of uh, road planning. All right, so uh, first of all, I'd just like to highlight that the city has declared a climate emergency and that is um, underpinned by our commitment to achieving uh, a net zero by 2035. And we at the city are very, we're not shy in saying that's about mode shift. It's not about the electrification of vehicles, although that is a part of the solution. It's actually about mode shift. So that means more people to walk, more people to cycle, more people to catch public transport. And we then have a strategy which very clearly says that we are a city for walking and cycling and public transport. And that's uh, what our uh, Lord Mayor says all the time. That's the leadership in the organisation. That's what we work towards. So if we think about that, the question you need to really ask yourself is, well, who exactly are we targeting and what really should we do about that? So walking is obviously important in the city. I mean, you've You've all been to the city. You know how many people there are on our streets. So where is, you know, there's about 90% of all trips in the city are on foot. And Jennifer challenged me to work out what the statistic was about space allocated for people walking versus people driving cars. And we actually spent some time measuring that a couple of years ago. And about 60% of the space uh, on the streets in the city in the densest, most economically productive part of Australia is dedicated to cars, and they represent less than 10% of trips in the city. So then that's walking, a little bit about cycling. The city spends a lot of time trying to ask, a, trying to ask the question, well, how can we motivate more people to ride? What do, we, what do we actually need to do? And we do a survey every couple of years, and we talk to people, and so we know that about more than 80% of people tell us that they would ride, and by that we mean they own a bike and can ride a bike that they would ride if there were more separated cycleways. And so that's what we're about doing. We're about implementing cycleways and separated cycleways. And we design those ideally for use by a 12-year-old. So we're assuming some level of competency, but we want them to be pretty safe. And the evidence of that, an evidence of the effectiveness of that is that at Green Square, I was just discussing with my colleague yesterday, we've just looked at uh, people who ride to work from Green Square, and the um, percentage of trips is about sort of 14 or 15%. And that compares to the rest of Greater Sydney where it's like less than 1%. So if you provide infrastructure, people use it, uh, particularly uh, to ride to work. So how do we think about solving that problem? And I think it has a lot to do with what do you want to achieve? So is it this or is it this? Or is it... And, and perhaps the most uh, impressive example of this is George Street. So George Street was a, a street with about 1,600 buses a day, and now it looks like this. And my own children have never known George Street to look anything, like, anything other than this. This is their experience of George Street. But this is not really what George Street looked like for the vast majority of its uh, existence. So, and, and I guess the point I want to make here is that this didn't happen accidentally. This happened because there was a really deliberate plan to move buses and cars out of the way and create great spaces for people. Right, so let's talk a little bit about some challenges because that's all the sort of theory. Firstly, um, for us in the city, uh, government is a real challenge. They're not internally aligned. I was just discussing with colleagues. I'd give them a, a gold star for strategy. They've got their story straight. They know what it is they want to do, but I'd have to give them a D for actually implementing it. It, it, it. it just is a constant battle to take space away from cars. Uh, at the moment, in the city, which is the best funded, most organised, most disciplined builder of walking and cycling infrastructure in New South Wales, it takes us about three years at best to take space away from vehicles and create new space for people to walk and ride. And at worst, I don't know, could, could take a decade. Um, certainly Oxford Street Cycleway hasn't yet started, Castlereagh Cycleway is just starting. Those projects have both in the planning, been in the planning for at least five years. So secondly, uh, engineering consultancies, uh, particularly you know, the, the big consultancies, they really don't have much experience in understanding what good looks like. 
And they often use road safety as an excuse to do not very much. And lastly, uh, we frequently get told by transport that people, drivers always are complaining about delays, but people who walk, they just don't complain. People who ride, they just don't complain. So maybe the message there is, well, maybe you should all complain a bit more. But in any case, uh, we're not really... Uh, people who drive complain a lot. So uh, I, I do want to give a highlight. COVID was an unexpected opportunity. We slowed vehicles down. We implemented automatic phasing to allow people to cross streets faster. We built and doubled the cycling network through pop-up cycleways. It was an absolutely fantastic time where we collaborated uh, between state and local government. So building isn't the only thing we want to do at the city. We're also all on about behaviour change. We run lots of events. We do free tune-ups. We run tri-bike events. We consult with the community. We, run you know, we support advocacy groups. So we're really invested in trying to help people to walk and ride more. And then, the, probably the most important question then is, well, how much are we actually investing? Because it really comes down to uh, putting your money where it matters. So uh, this year, the city's capital budget for infrastructure is about 200 million, and about half of that is built, spent on new projects. That is to say, not asset renewal, but new projects. And about 40 million of that is being spent on walking and cycling. So about 20% of the capital program overall is being spent on walking and cycling. So that compares with, so I've been reading some, some of the advocacy group um, reporting about yesterday's budget, that compares with state government's um, budget which came down yesterday where $6,000 per taxpayer has been spent on transport, 3,000 of that is being spent on roads and only $12 per person is being spent on active transport. So that doesn't go anywhere near, you know, 20 or 10 or 20, that, that, that's absolutely nothing. Um, yeah, and I'm just going to end with a, a great photo of just people having fun riding bikes, which is one of the things that we, you know, always like to promote at the city. Okay, right, so I've got time for an anecdote. So I'm going to tell you three anecdotes. Um, in light of Jennifer's comment about speed limits, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago we received some, a complaint at the City of Sydney from a uh, surgeon at St Vincent's Hospital because we had delayed the speed or reduced the speed limit on Glidepoint Road from 50 kilometres to 40 kilometres and we were therefore causing him a delay in driving to his work. We uh, recently uh, received a complaint from a driver in Piermont um, and asked us to improve the phasing of signals, which we can't do, but asked us to improve the phasing of signals because it was taking him too long to drive between Piermont and UTS. Uh, um, but perhaps my favourite anecdote is a hotel in the city approached us after we'd completed a cycleway project, taken us quite a few years, we've done a lot of consultation, numerous attempts, you know, always consulting with people, finished our cycleway, breathed sigh of relief, approached by a hotel seeking to remove it because their important visitors could no longer park cars directly on the street out from the hotel. And we said, well, haven't you got a... You've got, like, a driveway. Couldn't, couldn't, you park, couldn't they park in the driveway? Wouldn't that be OK? No, no, this is a really important person. I said, OK, so... Oh, this is the Prime Minister. Oh, OK, right, I see. Yes, an important person. The Prime Minister is coming to a green energy conference at our hotel and they need to park out the front on the street and you need to take the cycleway out so they can do that. Now, never wanting to pass up an opportunity in the city, we responded and said, maybe you'd like to ride a bike. We could organise a tour. <laughs> we could arrive at the event on a bike. Uh, and, and I'd like to say we pursued that. Sadly, sadly the Prime Minister didn't, didn't take us up on our offer. But never wanting to pass up that opportunity to promote people to walk and ride. Um, yeah, so there you go. There's just some anecdotes of the type of experiences that we have working in the city. Oh, thank you so much, Tegan. I always love those anecdotes. Um, it, it sort of reminds me of how uh, the World Sustainable Transportation Research Forum meets every year in Washington, or actually the Transportation Research Board. I always find that quite uh, amusing from the perspective of its carbon footprint. 
Uh, so, our second speaker, and I'm so um, proud to introduce from our school, is one of our rising, rising stars, Dr Rebecca Clements. Dr Clements is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Infrastructure Governance Incubator, which is funded by the Henry Halloran Research Trust. She previously completed her, completed her PhD in urban planning at the University of Melbourne, focused on parking policy in Japanese cities. Her research focuses on sustainable and equitable urban planning, including infrastructure governance, transport and parking approaches in Australia and East Asia. She's also very interested in mobility justice approaches. So welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Jen, um, and thank you everyone for being here for t uh, today for this really important conversation. And I'll also start by acknowledging that I'm uh, standing here today on unceded Gadigal lands. Um, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this at a presentation before, but because Jen began with that very powerful provocation, I'll also mention that I um, uh, lost my closest nephew to... Um, well, he was hit by a car while crossing a road. So um, I really would like us to get to a point where we have systems where this doesn't happen to anybody. Um, so with that said, I'm going to focus today on uh, parking. And I've called my uh, uh, talk today Contesting Parking, which I hope we all do, and Renewing Streets. Um, and I'm going to be talking about lessons from Japanese cities that I hope that we can kind of think about in sort of, you know, renewing our approach to parking and, and streets in uh, Australian cities like Sydney. So, good, okay. So just to start off with, um, in, in all of these urban transitions that we're hoping to achieve away from car dominance towards more sustainable, equitable, people-centred places, livable cities, all of that stuff that we want, um, research really consistently shows that um, parking policy approaches are one of our most powerful pathways to making this change. Things really kind of always come back to parking. Um, there's a whole range of parking uh, issues in Australian cities like Sydney, Melbourne, etc. you know, that we, we kind of like already know a lot about that we need to sort of move towards. So this includes moving from bundled parking, parking, that's parking spaces that are bundled with buildings and homes um, that sort of lock parking into single users and particular uses towards more unbundled parking and more public forms of parking that can change over time. We definitely need to move away from free parking, which encourages excess driving and imposes the costs of parking on everyone, not just drivers, uh, towards more uh, uh, systems with price parking. And pricing as well is also one of the most powerful tools for behaviour change that we have. And of course, something that's probably a little bit more apparent and familiar to people is that we need to move away from poor use of space, which is dominated by the storage of cars, towards opening up that precious urban space for all of these other more people-centric uh, and mobility um, urban alternatives that we want to institute. There are a lot of particular problems that come from street parking, more than I can mention here, but I'll, I'll mention kind of three main things. One is, of course, major safety conflicts for all street users, really. Um, but what I can, you know, what you can see there is cycling, which we probably hear a lot about. Um, and I have a partner who is a cyclist, and I'm constantly watching his little dot on Strava Live to make sure he makes it home every single day. Um, and it's uh, also important to mention children for whom parking and park cars are a particular danger because of the problem with with visibility and sight lines. So on-street parking also both generates and worsens traffic, and in um, in ways such as um, acting as a, a barrier for things like bus priority lanes, that's Parramatta Road around the corner from where I live, and there are often like one or two or three cars parked in the bike lane. It's kind of an unbelievable use of that space. Um, and also on-street parking, if we rethink it, basically what it is is it's people's personal storage in public space. So if you imagine people put, you know, keeping their wardrobes and what not on public space. We'd think very differently about it, but we don't think about it when it's cars. So street parking, of course, also represents competition for all kinds of alternatives, um, alternative uses of, of that urban space and for like, the condition of, of safe, inclusive mobility. So this might be you know, uh, bike lanes, it might be wider pedestrian spaces, it might be trees and gardens and water-sensitive urban design, and there's any you know, number of other things that we might you know, think about when we're renewing and reimagining our street space. 
But parking is always a very particular, particularly, you know, um, a, a contest, contested topic when we try to have these discussions of policy change. Um, and what I've seen over the life of my planning career so far is just constant chronic planning failures that come from, um, uh, you know, often stemming from the opposition to parking reform. Um, so, our, our, a lot, you know, so many of the sustainable transport policies and measures that we've tried to introduce keep getting stuck on often local parking opposition. It's really important that we deal with this topic. So I'm going to talk to you today about some of the things that we might learn from Japan's parking approaches. And there's a, there's a, a lot of reasons I could go into about why that is, but like a couple of the, the big ones are that Japan has had a very, very long-term um, parking approach over six decades. Most of their parking framework came about in the 50s and 60s, so it's seen a lot of urban change. Um, there's also a number of ways in which it's been, uh, you, you could say it's been very, very effective, and also that a lot of the policies and, um, and things I'll talk about today are occurring at a national scale. It's not little pockets, it's not particular cities. A lot of them are at a national scale. So really short, the key features of Japan's kind of parking uh, approaches are that there is almost no on-street parking. It is mostly an off-street parking system, and there is strict enforcement to go along with that. There is a, a very interesting law called the proof of parking law in, in English, which is, basically means that a parking space must be secured by a user before you can register a car. So this really shifts the onus of responsibility. Um, most homes and buildings are actually exempt from minimum parking regulations. It only applies to really, really big buildings and, and department stores and whatnot. Most of the typologies are small plot off-street parking typologies. Most parking is priced. Um, and essentially, parking is more of a private good, not a public infrastructure. Um, so some of the major forms that this takes are sort of hourly coin parking, lots for visiting, um, public parking, monthly lease parking facilities for a lot of people who want to keep their car, uh, their, their home car or whatnot um, in these facilities. Um, and it's also important to mention the very, very space-efficient car stack of facilities. These are not everywhere, but they are around the place, and they're particularly effective in, you know, busier centres, activity centres, etc. So... Essentially, um, this kind of walkable parking that results in many cities can have a very, very low neighbourhood impact. You can see here these red squares in this neighbourhood in Kobe are the little parking lots. So access to parking essentially isn't coming at the expense of a great neighbourhood for all. Um, it also supports highly walkable neighbourhoods in a lot of ways. Um, these kind of regulations result in many no-car or no-parking space buildings at all. Some people have them, but a lot of people don't have them. Most of these parking lots have a small footprint, uh, and most of the parking forms themselves also just have a low impact. They don't dominate the street. Um, but they still provide high levels of accessibility for car users. And this is showing that um, in you know, two case study cities that I looked at, two case study neighbourhoods, essentially, you get almost 100% um, access over a very, very short walking period to both types of, of parking. So essentially, this supports people-centric neighbourhood streets where the cars are only guests. They're not leaders. They're not dictating what, you know, what kind of streets are there. Uh, and it's worth mentioning, of course, that this is in conjunction with many other situations like low traffic speeds, etc. Um, and also, I, I look a lot in my work at how these uh, people-centred streets can support high levels of children's independent mobility. And these days, I can usually just point to the fact that many of you have seen the Netflix show Old Enough, where children as young as two and three can go out by themselves, <coughs> make a lot of mistakes on an errand, etc. This is this, It's a safe neighbourhood for them to walk around, and that's the reason that that exists. And parking is one part of that. So um, what can we learn from Japan's approach here, where we're, we're freeing the street for mobility systems change? So parking is not so much of a transport problem in Japan. It's more of a real estate property trade-off. Um, and the really important thing here is that street space is, is where so many of our mobility alternatives um, are, where that change is occurring. So we're kind of freeing up room for a systems change there. 
So I, I'd like for this, um, for, for um, the story of Japan, I suppose, to help us reshape our narratives about collective mobility futures in terms of acknowledging that there are more expansive alternatives out there. We can have really big ambitions. We can expand the stakes of reform, like whose, whose streets and whose futures are we actually talking about. Um, and this can help us to define new allies and coalitions to help make political change. Um, and just really quickly, last slide. Um, uh, we already oversupply parking everywhere. We've already got loads of off-street parking. So we can make better use of our off-street parking supplies via unbundling and removing minimum parking regulations. And it's already happening in a lot of places where we've created the conditions for informal solutions to occur, like sharing apps and apartments partnering with parking businesses, et cetera. They're already trying to kind of make better use of their parking supplies or convert them. Um, and just a, a, little, a little note, this doesn't exist yet, but like maybe we could consider forms of car stacker facilities in particular areas where that makes sense, where you've got a small land use footprint um, and it's more adaptable over time to sort of allow activity to grow around it. Um, yeah, so thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, so many questions um, and, and such interesting ideas. It's amazing what happens when we look around us instead of just focusing on our own little microcosm. Rest assured, we will all have opportunities for questions um, at the conclusion of, of Ben's talk. So introducing our last speaker, Benjamin Carr. Ben Carr is the co-founder of subscription e-cargo bike service, Lug and Carry. He's a mobility expert with 15 years of experience in the mobility sector. Prior to moving back to Australia to set up Lug and Carry with his brother, he was head of production and vehicle design for Europe's fastest growing micromobility provider, CIRC, which is now Bird. He has designed 15 plus metro and light rail vehicles, uh, which are currently in service, and he's the co-founder of White Octopus GmbH Berlin, a company providing mobility solutions, evaluations and innovations. So welcome, Ben. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, so, May, I kind of covered a bit of it in that, but um, I guess what I wanted to bring today is that um, I know quite a lot about vehicles that are going to be on the streets. That's a bit my background. So, originally a designer here, uh, studied in, in Australia, but um, did many years in public transport, designing rail vehicles and then rail networks uh, all across the world. Um, I got sick of designing trains, essentially, and um, went into and, you know, bought the bit the bullet and went to a startup in which I learned a lot about sharing vehicles. Uh, got to learn, uh, take a lot of my learnings from designing accessible public transport and bring that into other vehicle types that weren't being shared before, uh, so cars and bikes and scooters. I didn't love the solution for, for, for um, shared as a real solution for the cities and the impact they were having on the people and the communities they lived in. And that kind of founded the, the first ideas for, for lug and carry. So I'll quickly just cover what we do. Um, so we offer e-bikes, or we're all about getting people out of cars. I literally used to work for a department of Deutsche Bahn called Autoabschaffen, which literally means get rid of your car. And we're all about providing solutions um, to stop people getting in their cars in the first place. And the only way to do that is to provide solutions that can replace car trips. So we're not talking about recreational cycling, we're talking about bikes that can carry your kids, can carry your groceries, can get you across the city. Uh, and we do that on what we call a subscription, um, so it's flexible. So we want to make it a no-brainer for Australians to give it a go. So we're not in the market of getting cyclists onto e-bikes, we're in the market of getting people out of cars and actually giving it a go when it's an expensive and a, an emotional thing to go through, to, especially if you've got kids involved. We try to make that as easy as possible for people to get on bikes, get more cyclists on the streets. Um, just on some of the things, and I did write some notes, I wanted to cover them because um, they were great points. So uh, parking. Uh, parking is an issue for bikes even. 28% um, of our customers who don't get on a bike uh, cite park parking, home parking for their bikes is a reason not to get in on a, on a bike in the first place. 8% actually give up because of parking. So the amount of effort they need to go through to get their bike out and in um, is the reason they give up. And we know that we you know, prefer cars for that. You can park out the front of your house. You can, you know, it's a really great service. And if we're going to be serious, then we need to provide a solution that's better than parking your car for parking bikes. And that's, you know, two-prong. 30 percent, uh, 30 kilometre an hour speed limits. We have more customers where the speed limits are lower. We also have more customers where there's bicycle infrastructure, especially older infrastructure. 
So if we're just, it's great we're building it now, but it's a long return on that. But it really works, and we can show maps to show that our customers show follow co corridors in Melbourne, Sydney, or, or Brisbane. Um, getting back to it, though, is that the right way? Um, future looks great. Um, I've only been in Sydney a few years, but I lived in Germany for the most of my 20s and 30s. Um, and we're getting there. It's looking good. Um, that we're seeing things on the street. We're seeing Uber Eats. We're seeing shared scooters. We're seeing e-bikes. We're seeing new things. It's interesting. We're seeing bike lanes. And it didn't look like that when I left. Um, what I want to talk about today is the, actually the opportunity in the vehicle space. So if we're going to get rid of cars, what's going to fill that gap? Um, we can't replace it all with bikes. There's going to be interesting vehicles that can come out and fill that space. And not many people know about it, but there is a standard for this that everyone else uses in the world. Um, which is a, a plev, um, and it's a really exciting space, especially if you're at university or a designer or an engineer. Um, it's open, like you can do what you want, essentially. If you're designing trains, cars or whatever, or streets, there's so much regulation, so much red tape, and we have this opportunity. And this is the reason we're seeing so many interesting vehicles on the street today. Uh, so essentially, design within this box, 900, by, uh, 900 centimetres by two metres. Uh, it's not allowed to go faster than 25 kilometres by itself. Uh, has to be under 250 watt nominal, says so a bit in that. And uh, there are some weight limits. I think it's 500 kilos in some countries, 200 in others. But essentially, this is the opportunity space. And this is why we're seeing lots of really weird vehicles as well, which is great if you're a designer. So Blue Ocean, fantastic. We're going to see all these really cool, weird things. And these things need to be planned onto our streets. And they need to be, we need to find the right tools for the right job. So this is a, a vehicle obviously doing package delivery. Um, problem's not solved, though. Like, we can do it, there's all that stuff, but it's missing all the rest. So um, we're talking about infrastructure, particularly today. We need to think ahead and plan for these vehicles that are coming. And in Australia, as we're noticing with electric vehicles, we are not initiating that change. The manufacturers are initiating that change. We have to adapt. We don't have a choice, so we're going to have to adapt our infrastructure for that. The same goes for these types of vehicles, light electric vehicles. They need to get through things. They need to get to your front door. There can't be bollards in the way. There has to be space for these vehicles and speed limits, which adapt to these, for these vehicles to be on the road as well. There's also a big issue is that we're not standardising it here in Australia as well, and we're pushing all of the risk onto the consumer. Yeah, so consumers are going out to JB Hi-Fi buying a scooter, and if they ride that scooter on the footpath and hit someone, they'll get charged with riding an unlicensed motorbike without a helmet on the footpath. And that's because the consumer has bought a product which isn't standardised in Australia. Still, the company was able to bring it in, import it into the country, put it on the showroom floor and sell it to the consumer. And that's just not acceptable, essentially. Um, good thing is, we can learn from others. Uh, I know we're all a bit anti-car here today. Um, <laughs> I'm very anti-second car. I'm OK with one car sometimes. But um, the car industry is a really good in, um, example of uh, an industry kind of working itself out. And that's a bit like what we're seeing with, like, you know, one-wheeled um, um, skateboards and scooters and whatnot. It's early days, and um, the car developed itself over, you know, well over 100 years. We're in a similar spot right now where we're trying to work out what light electric vehicles, what type of vehicle types do we need, and how do they exist on our roads. Um, but the car industry is a really good example to follow. Um, they have a vision. We don't really have a vision for light electric vehicles or for cycling, really. Um, and the car industry gets really behind it. Volkswagen, after all the diesel gate, just came out and said, we're going to do electric, and everyone believed them. Yeah? Ballsy. Um, but we need to be just as ballsy. We need to be as competitive and fight for our space on the streets as well. They've got bodies. They've got standards. I love this photo of the categories. Um, there's things that are meant to be on the road and things that aren't meant to be on the road. And it's pretty easy once we get used to it, which one's not meant to be on our roads and which one isn't. We currently don't have that for other vehicle types. So what are people doing overseas and what should we be doing? We should, the big one is, is looking into standards that already exist. We already use EN standards and DIN standards in Australia. We can just adopt them and start you know, importing things under these, uh, these laws that already exist. We don't have to wait. And that's going to remove that risk from the consumer. So if they go in there and buy something, then they can be assured that it's set to the standards and meets our road, road standards as well. Um, and categorisation, uh, that's one thing that we're missing. That categorisation only doesn't go into vehicles, but it also needs to come onto our streets that we're planning for those types of vehicles to exist on our streets as well. Um, so my point on this is there's enough potential ideas out there, there's enough good, 
um, examples of how to standardise um, you know, these, these vehicles and our roads. We just need to look outside. And the main thing that I want to take out of this is if we don't do it, we're pushing all the risk onto the consumer. Um, and we, that, that will result in deaths and people being fined. So it's really up to us as an industry to professionalise and accept the things that are coming and take on this standardisation and make really good, put, put the, the building blocks in place for these vehicles that are coming. Um, we're just not ready for them. Thank you very much. Okay, a really interesting note to end on and it is amazing some of the innovation that's happening around the world. Okay, now I'd like to invite our speakers up. Um, for our panel, and we are going to have some questions from the audience. Oh, wow. We've got a question to start off with, so let's go for it. If you could say uh, who you are and if you feel it's appropriate where you're from, that would be great, just to give us some context. Hello. It's Tim Sullivan from WSP, one of those consultants that doesn't have the design expertise just yet. Tegan, I was talking at our AITPM conference last week, and someone asked me, if you're looking for leadership in government in Australia, um, where do you look? And I, I got as far as City of Sydney and not much further. So my question is, where do you look for leadership? Where do you get your inspiration? So um, I actually say exactly the same thing as you all the time, that I say Clovermore is the only leader with a city vision. She's the only politician that I know of who talks about great cities, who wants great cities, who advocates for a great city. Um, yeah, no, I think... You know, I certainly think she's been incredibly powerful in shaping the city. I mean, the city obviously has a lot of... Um, is, is, has a lot of wealth behind it, but, um, yeah, without her leadership, I don't think the city would, would be where it is today. Um, you know, the story of the relationship of the city with Jan Gell and the way that he's helped shaped the vision for George Street and, and pedestrianiser and the role of people in the city, that's been incredibly powerful. So I agree with you. It is, it is the city of Sydney. So do you take inspiration from anywhere else or is it always going to international? Oh, internationally. Practice? Oh, that's a different question. Oh, no, I mean I in Australia. Is there anywhere else that's getting it right in Australia? I don't, well, not that I know of. I mean, Marybeck's not bad <laughs> in Melbourne. City of Marybeck, worth having a look. Actually, the, yes, so they, I think, have 30K... They have some 30K speed zones. We, do, we still haven't cracked that nut in New South Wales. So, yeah, Melbourne... At least Melbourne are doing that. That's I probably. said it's a real mixed bag. Like, they've just made a decision to so, repair some bikes. It's true, very true. So it's very disappointing. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other questions from the floor for the moment? I've got plenty myself, so <laughs> I'm more than happy to, to ask away. Um, all right, so... Oh... Over here, yes. Hi, Ali, <coughs> Ali Dench from the uh, Western Sydney Health Alliance. Um, the question about leadership is so important, particularly with the growth that's happening out in Western Sydney. And I do know a lot of this is a lot focused around urbanised areas, but there is certainly lots of growth with lots of potential for some wonderful sister city type of relationships. Has the city of Sydney thought of maybe piloting or joining up with new growth areas? Um, for to get the planning right in the first place? I, I must acknowledge that I'm sitting in the room with some other City of Sydney planners at the moment. I, I honestly don't know the answer to your question, but I do know that the City collaborates, is a big believer in collaboration, and, you know, I've got another colleague at the moment who's collaborating on a project in Parramatta Council today, so I, I, I don't think we're... I think we're very open to the idea of collaboration. We're about to do a walking and cycling strategy for the Western Parkland City, so it'd be wonderful to look at those sorts of innovations that's happening there to get right at the very front forefront of the planning mm. process. I might actually ask you about that, Rebecca, because you've been doing some work in Western Sydney. So to what extent do you think the lessons are transferable from... I mean, they're, they're quite different contexts. Mm. So, And I'm always very conscious of that, even when we're taking learnings from overseas, is to just plonk it down in Sydney. You, you're not getting the cultural and the environmental nuance that's happening. So to what extent do you think that lessons from City of Sydney could be transferred to Western Sydney? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, you know, if you're talking about Japan, obviously they're very, very, very different contexts mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but it doesn't mean that you can't take lessons from them because in a lot of cases, the, the, you know, there are principles, there are ideas, there are regulations that are transferable, adaptable, mm -hmm. etc. A lot of what we should be taking is ambition, mm -hmm. you know, and vision, you know, and um, and the 
I suppose, um, you know, the audacity to think big about our futures mm. um, and to not, um, you know, to, to not um, discount the possibility of change. But that, that's why I sort of, I, I try to kind of um, translate some specific things that some of these ideas kind of boil down to in, in an Australian context. Mm. But even then it's, you know, like, it, it still has to be thought about in a local context. So I hope that these are beginning points for discussion, just discussion that's sort of thinking bigger or thinking more ambitiously about what, you know, where we're trying to get to. So perhaps we need to clone Clover. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to jump in with a question, and this is also to Rebecca. I hope that's okay. <laughs> Sorry. I was really interested in your point that the approach to parking in Japan is a, a national level thing. It's yep. not just pockets here and there. And that really resonates, I think, with what we're doing with the reductions in speed limits here in Australia, is that we're trying this, this precinct approach. And I'm just wondering whether how important you think that overarching sort of nationwide strategic vision is to what works in Japan, as opposed to having this precinct by precinct approach. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's a different um, historical context because a lot of the national level parking frameworks that I mentioned, like the ban on on-street parking and um, the garage law, etc., that um, uh, all of these things that are playing out, they were kind of put in at the time where Japan was beginning to mass motorize, mm -hmm. but they were put in um, kind of recognizing that you know as Japan you know as cars sort of grew in Japan, they were going to have really really big problems. They were able to look at you know the U.S. where it had happened earlier and go, my God, you know like we've got to do something. And I'm not saying that the you know politicians and government at the time did it for the reasons we're talking about here, they most certainly did not. But nevertheless, the, the scale of those um, uh, national regulations, I think, has done, in a lot of cases, wonders through this urban change where, you know, they still experienced a massive, massive rise in cars. A lot of cities, you know, did not do as well as places like Tokyo. So they, there are more car-centric cities there where these things have played out much worse. But if you had left it, to individual cities and individual, you know, um, local governments, etc., to institute, you, you simply wouldn't get, um, you know, the, the massive benefits that you get. As it is, like on-street parking is banned everywhere in Japan. Mm. You have to, you would have to sort of fight and try really hard to kind of get areas of on-street parking. You know, so you're, you're creating the right foundation and you're making it harder. To sort of make things worse in a way, like you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting. I do have some questions that were sent in previously, so we'll turn to those now. I mean, I, I suppose this is probably, I think, one that, that's best for for Ben. Is it better to separate people from vehicles or to promote shared roads and paths? The I think never-ending question. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Infrastructure before, yeah. So. I think there's examples of both working. Um, we just launched in Los Angeles, um, which is like the car capital of the world. And there isn't great infrastructure there. And I would say for the majority of people riding in Sydney as well, the, they're not on infrastructure all the time. Really great infrastructure. And they're mixed in with everyone else. So it's a, a given, I think, that we have to design for both um, and have these amazing highways, freeway type designs for you know where we know there's high usage. but. Um, the 30-kilometre speed limits, especially on residential streets, or making residential streets attractive to cycle on is the easiest step to make. You don't have to do much. You just need to make them safe. And then the second biggest challenge that we um, have here is making sure that, especially if we're trying to move a big part of the population onto a different vehicle, onto a bike or something like that, it's making sure that they're well-informed or have the tools to identify those safe streets so they don't end up on Parramatta Road on their first ride because we've lost them. They're either dead or they're given up. <laughs> like, never, ever. So it's, it's, it's two pieces. My other example on that is I was in Amsterdam a couple of months ago and sitting there watching all the infrastructure, everyone riding around each other. Amazing, you know, and no cars on the street. Nuts. There was just as many people riding in Frankfurt and in Berlin who have similar levels of infrastructure as Sydney, but they're all just riding on the roads. And the reason they can do it is they've hit a critical mass of cyclists. And that's 
I th in terms of the opportunity I see in Australia especially is the residential streets making them easy to ride on, but getting to that critical mass as quickly as possible so everyone is a rider, not everyone, but everyone knows a rider or knows what it's like to be a rider because that's going to change the behaviour of how people drive on residential streets and the awareness just through having some riders. Like that's the opportunity space, knowing other people, getting that critical mass, then it will come by itself. Um, I give you a really good example sometimes in our, um, in our other talks is that when Uber launched its car sharing um, in, in, in the world and when uh, Uber Eats came with all those things every, and, and, and bike sharing, everyone flipped their lid. Like it was all over the news and, and everyone was like, oh, it's not going to work and all that stuff. And sharing has a really bad history of that as well. We all know the photos. But we've accepted it now. It got to a critical mass. We all use Uber Eats. We all use Uber. We accepted that there's people doing deliveries on the road, and it's OK. We, don't, we haven't hit that for riding. Like if I rock up to a, a meeting today with my helmet, oh, you got a helmet. How'd you get Like, you rode. Like, we haven't norm, the normalization piece is the, 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 the struggle and the opportunity, because it's you know just put 10,000 10, more bikes on the street tomorrow and everyone will flip their lid <laughs> and then three weeks later it won't be an issue like that's that's the real challenge and opportunity yeah did you want to add something I, I to just that want to make two points um so firstly so uh i think this question about is it enough to lower the speed i think you're right ben lowering the speed is important but we still need to provide infrastructure and uh particularly if we're aiming for the whole cross section of community uh, that's you know, younger people as well as competent people. So, yeah, that's the safe systems approach. Um, the other thing I would say is that what we've now started to see in the city is that for the first time ever, there's been no seasonal effect to people riding bikes. So normally what happens is that you see an increase in the number of people riding a bike over the summer, and then as it comes into winter, it drops off. And for the first time, that's not happened. And we um, uh, anticipate that when we complete the inner city network, so some people would say it's quite astonishing that we don't have a separated cycling network in the inner city, but we don't yet. We may have that maybe by the end of next year, maybe. Uh, that when that happens, we'll see a network effect and we'll take another step change in terms of people being, you know, people wanting to ride um, on, on the city streets. Yeah. So, um, I think both of those things, they feed into one another. It's not one or the other. It's a sort of cumulative uh, as long as Yeah, I think as long as industry leaders, we don't rely on infrastructure being there as the solution. It's just we don't have time. It's going to take too long. We need yes, to work on I, the other I one. agree with yeah. you. And so speed, speed is definitely yeah. an important part of it, yeah. and uh, it, that continues to be a challenge. Yeah. Okay, I can see some hands going up, um, and I've got no idea what order they went in, but we'll start with Chris. Christopher Standen from UNSW Sydney. A uh, question for Tegan. It's great to see the amount of uh, spending that's going into walking and cycling and the amount of effort, but I have one question about the signalised intersections going into regeneration areas like Green Square and Ashmore. What, why? When we know these prioritise uh, cars over people walking and cycling, you take a walk through the CBD, you spend half your time waiting at, waiting at a traffic signal, we know that there are safer alternatives like protected roundabouts and four-way stops that also have a natural traffic calming effect. No need for a posted 30k limit when you have uh, things that naturally slow down traffic. So, yeah, one... one. I, I so totally agree with you, uh, but... Um, and I don't know if you know this, but uh, in New South Wales, the um, jurisdictional responsibilities for different parts of transport are a bit complicated. So um, that's code for me saying that if the city was in charge, we might do it differently, but we're not in charge. So but, but we see this happening on local streets as well that are managed by City of Sydney. Yeah, so unfortunately, signals is an issue that's got nothing to do with local or state roads. That's an issue for transport for New South Wales. The city does not... We don't have any... Um, control over that at all. Once they're put in, you don't control them, but you have some say over whether they get put in on local streets to begin with. We, we, we can have some say. You're, you're, you're right, we do get some say, but I wouldn't like to say that we were the dominant authority in that space. Um, I mean, I, I have been working in the space for quite a few years now, and I observe that it's a very imbalanced relationship, and we do, all, we, we do what we're told to do uh, a lot of the time. One cog in a very big wheel. Yes. We've got time for one more question, and I did see... Yes, 
be lovely. Thank you. Uh, look, Ed Steen here from Transport for New South Wales, and um, <clears throat> thank you for the really interesting presentations. Um, I was interested in the contestations that you sort of each referred to. Uh, where do you see the lowest hanging fruit? Like, the, is there something simple to really grapple with really quickly uh, that you've sort of felt? You know, we've got government people here, we've got university people, we've got obviously members of the public. Is this something that would be easy to attack? Yeah, so when you say easy, Ed, do you mean cheap? <laughs> you mean, is that cheap? Is, well, so for me, the cheapest, easiest thing to do is lower the speed limit. I mean, 30Ks, that's the cheapest, easiest thing to do. And um, I think movement in place actually makes it a bit of a no-brainer. Uh, I think on the... Everywhere, but sort of that state roads, that main roads category of movement in place, we should be looking at 30Ks or less. You know, in civic spaces, it should be 20 or 10. Mm. I don't think that's actually... That's not revolutionary. That's not my idea. That's what everybody else is doing. That's the simplest thing to do. Mm. I mean, New Zealand is doing it. And if they can do it, why can't we do it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, to be honest, I would agree with that one. That, that's what I would pick if, if you know, we needed a, some sort of you know, silver bullet, even though there's none. Um, but if you want something from my area in my presentation, I would say get rid of minimum parking regulations everywhere. Like, it's been a discredited policy for so long. We can just stop building new parking, forcing the building of new parking in, in new developments like that, and it would be fine. Mine is uh, speed limits as well, uh, number one. And then number two is uh, subsidies. So like these, like if there are ones for cars, then get rid of them. Yeah. And then uh, it's a proven, it's, the UK is doing, the US is doing it to great effect, uh, subsidising um, public transport or cycling or removing the tax, FPT rules on tax, or French benefits tax on a bike. And they've just done it for EVs. But they didn't do like electric bikes at the same time, which just blows my mind with the government we have at the moment. But those two things, no-brainers and easy. And don't pay people's tolls. That yeah. Might be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, such an interesting discussion, and unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up there. But thank you to all our panelists. Um, really appreciate your time. We are going to hand over to Dr. Cox to do a, a short wrap-up for us. Uh, that was a very stimulating and very interesting session, I thought. Uh, um, something Tegan said reminded me of my very first day in Australia as a 22-year-old many years ago when someone said to me, it's not like Pommyland here. If you put your foot on the zebra crossing, the cars aren't going to stop necessarily. And also, when you see that green man, don't necessarily expect there won't be a car turning left into you. Um, I keep picking up these features still in Australia, whereas maybe in Europe is a bit, there's a bit more of a balance towards the pedestrian. And that leads me to my next reflection from what Ben was saying about Germany. Um, I suppose first under Mayor Ken Livingstone in London and uh, then supercharged by Mayor Boris Johnson was the cycling revolution. And it really had to be seen to be believed. Um, Boris instituted, uh, and I don't normally do a plug for Boris, but he does deserve credit for cycling in London. Um, the, the cycling superhighways, which you see connecting one uh, area of Greater London to another uh, in all directions. Uh, lots of blue paint, but very good, very effective as a cyclist myself. Uh, the Boris bikes, which become addictive after a while. I've got a bike. Uh, but I tended to use Boris bikes for the simple reason you didn't have to worry about parking them. You just docked them at the end. Uh, and you were never going to ruin a good suit on them either. So that was uh, something. The critical mass. I remember one afternoon uh, cycling on the Mayor of the Bone Road in London in peak hour. And it was just like I was on another planet. You were in a peloton of cyclists who were just overtaking huge London buses and trucks. It was out of this world. You know when there's been a, a cycling revolution, when you get the critical mass experience happening. Um, OK, one of the thoughts uh, and phrases I'll take away from this is about reshaping the narrative. Um, and that's a very important thing, is to change the way people think. And Rebecca, I thought your, your walk through the Japanese model was very, very powerful. Um, 
envisioning the future, as Ben was saying, envisioning the future. Um, and one thing that's going through a lot of the sessions, uh, and I said this yesterday at Contested Environments, is thinking about what constitutes good regulation and effective regulation. And in, in this space, it may be about standardization. It may also be about parking standards and walking standards. Uh, but uh, thinking about what that can do to change. And I often say to people, good regulation leads to innovation. So you don't have to wait for the private sector to start something. Get it driven through good regulation. So I'd like to thank all our speakers, uh, Tegan Mitchell, and I do applaud the, it was very obvious coming back after eight years that Clovermore has transformed this city uh, and all the people working for her. Uh, thank you, Dr. Re Rebecca Clements. Thank you, Ben Carr. And thank you for chairing and your presentation at the start, Dr. Jennifer Kent. And thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.